Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, and we're going to work through uh, the story of the crucifixion today. We're just going to dig into the text, and then at the end, uh, we're going to offer uh, some uh, points of application for this week that is normally called Holy Week, as we walk to the cross with Jesus. And then as next Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection together. And so today we're going to look at the cross together and see what God might do in our lives by the power of his spirit, according to his word. And so as you stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, I'm going to read the first part of verse 24, just the first part, 24a, as we begin our time in God's word together. Mark chapter 15, look at verse 24 and how it begins. Let those words sink deep into your soul. And they crucified him. Oh God, we thank you that they crucified him. We thank you that we have a cross, a bloody instrument of torture that we can sing about as being wonderful. A place of execution that is glorious to us because it wasn't just they who crucified him. It was according to your plan that he be crucified for us. Would we be transformed by your cross today? And as we leave here today, would he not be the only one who is crucified? Would our sin and our lives be nailed to that cross today? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. it. Why did you try to hide this? I'll never forget the look in my mom's face as she said those words to me. And some of you are like, oh, here comes another one of his crazy stories as a kid. And I didn't realize uh, until I started preaching I had such a crazy childhood. And so I'll say before I begin, children, do not try this at home. But it was the classic... Christmas story story, but a little more graphic and gory. My granddad had bought me my first BB gun, and it was the one that you pump up. It was an air rifle, actually, and you just pump it up, and you could probably pierce through concrete with this thing, and I was determined to try to pierce through concrete with this gun, except on the day that I had my gun outside playing with one of my friends, I was not supposed to have this gun. I was around five or six years old, and one of the rules was you do not get that gun out when your dad's not at home, and you certainly don't get that gun out if you have friends over. So I was there with a babysitter, and here comes my best friend at the time in the neighborhood. His name was John Pollock, and we have not talked since this day. And you're going to find out why. Because he sees me with this gun. And his parents were were wise just like my parents. 
Five-year-olds shouldn't have a gun outside. And so if that kid across the street has a gun outside, you get your tail back home. And he said to me, um, if you have your gun out, I have to go back home. And I, I just wasn't thinking in this moment. I don't, this is the worst, I think this could be the worst moment of my life, probably. I had pumped this gun up, just sitting there as he's talking, thinking, oh, you, you just don't know how fun this is as I'm shooting cans and those sort of things. And I said, if you go home, I'm going to shoot you. Now, that was a joke. That was a joke coming out of my mouth. However, holding the gun, my trigger finger didn't think it was a joke. And the safety wasn't on this BB gun, and I accidentally pulled the trigger as those words, if you go home, I will shoot you, came out of my mouth, and I clipped his ear with a BB. Shot him in the ear. Shot him in the head. Let's just get it out there. No, just all the graphic details. As a five-year-old, I shot another five-year-old in the head with a BB gun. I've repented of that sin, and it's not on my record. I'm still qualified to be a pastor today, but... That is what happens. And believe it or not, that's not the worst part of the story. That's not the worst part of the story. Because I was scared to death because I knew what was going to happen when my parents got home. Uh, and, and I was very fearful. So in panic, I told John to go hide under his house. Until the bleeding stopped. Just stay there. If the bleeding's going to stop, no one's going to see it. No one's going to know. And he did it. Because he was scared too. He was like, I was not supposed to be at your house when you had the gun, and now I'm in big trouble too. And so John is under his house all day as blood is gushing out of his ear. And I would go over periodically and check on him, make sure he was still alive. But he's under the house. And I'll never forget the relief when his sister finally realized something's going on that's just not right. And his sister came down and saw and... Uh, the, the, the horrific scene of blood coming down the side of his face. His sister called his parents. They took him to the ER. He's totally fine today. Everything worked out for John. He has a great life, although he hasn't talked to me since that day. But I was in relief when my parents finally caught me. I was at the end of that day, after all the horrible thing that I did, the greatest moment of freedom when my parents came in the house and they knew what had happened and it was all on the table. The, the, the nightmare of trying to hide that all day was over. And I'll never forget my mom saying, why did you hide that? She wasn't even worried about the fact that I shot a kid in the head. She was more worried, why would you try to hide him under his house? Like, that's even worse. There's something wrong with you to do that. And that was, that was what she was focused on. And still to this day, when she tells that story, that's, she said, he hid him under the house. I was worried what the rest of his life was going to look like. So what kind of person hides a person under the house who he's shot in the head? Well, obviously, someone who shoots someone in the head would probably do that. I haven't done it since that day. The question for you today is, why would you hide? Why would you hide your sin? Why would you work so hard to hide your sin? And it is a question we ask at the cross. It is the question of the cross for us today. As we stand before the most horrible thing that we've ever done. 
the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus asked us, why are you hiding? What kind of person hides their sin? And as we get to our text today, as we begin in verse 21, up until this point on Good Friday, Jesus has gone through six different trials that begin way early in the morning as he is arrested in the garden. And he's gone through six trials with Anna, Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, the Jews, the religious leaders of the day. They have charged him with blasphemy, which requires death because he has told the truth. He's the son of God. The Gentiles, they have worked up charges of an insurrection. And the crowds have been stirred into riotous behavior. And the Roman government has been overwhelmed by the religious leaders and the people who are yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And and just as a part of the festivities of the day, they have led Jesus through the streets, beating him with whips laced with glass and nails. And as a part of the spectacle, they have placed a robe on his back as they lead him out of the city. And they have pressed a crown of thorns on his head and they are mocking him as a fake king. From early in the morning, about three hours of beatings, trials, humiliation, mocking. At this point, the Savior is too weak to carry his cross. And notice verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so as Jesus is moving through the street, they see a man, Simon, and they force him to carry Jesus' cross. Why would they do that? Because Jesus is not moving fast enough for them. They got a schedule to keep. And they grab this man out of the crowd. And Mark mentions him because he would have been known to the Roman church who would eventually read this. A man whose sons were instrumental in the Roman church. A man from Libya there to celebrate the Passover. And here he is carrying the cross of Jesus. And he carries the cross of Jesus out of the city. In verse 22, they brought him, Jesus, to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Golgotha was a trash heap outside of the city. It was a dump. It was used for trash and criminals. And as you came into the city, you, you, were, you were to be reminded, this is what happens when you rebel against Rome. You get discarded from the city. You get cast out of the city like trash. And here, this place that probably looked like a skull full of jagged rocks, and there was a hill, they dragged Jesus up to the top of this place. Before they lift him up, verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Now, this was kind of a narcotic of the day to numb the pain. Isn't it interesting in the... Probably the cruelest, torturous way of execution. One of the cruelest ways in the history of mankind. They're trying to be kind to him. You want to numb the pain a little bit? Are you in pain? They offer him this pain relief. But notice some very important words at the end of verse 23. But he did not take it. 
Let that sink in. Jesus did not numb the pain of the crucifixion. And Jesus has bore your sin in its full force. No relief. And so as you read those words, He did not take it. You should know He knows the consequences for your sin better than you do. More intimate than you do. He tasted, He experienced every ounce of pain. It was personal to Him. Notice verse 24. They finally drag Him up the hill, lay the boards down on the ground, in verse 24, and they crucified Him. Now, that's a simple statement that's used multiple times here in chapter 15. It's just to be a statement. It is to arrest our attention, and that's what Mark does throughout the Gospel. It's just his full force. They crucified Him. Mark wants to hit us with that reality. They crucified Him. He just wants to state the fact, and he actually gives very little details, but crucifixion was a very public execution by asphyxiation, suffocation. So Jesus would have been led to the top of this hill and they would have put railroad tie-like nails through his wrist, his hands at the bottom of his wrist where the muscles and bones would hold him up. They would have crossed his feet and put one nail through the bottom where the... Think about why they're doing that. In places where the bones and muscles are the strongest. So he won't rip off the cross. So he will be able to hang there for a long time. It was with precision that they did that. The Romans knew how to execute people. They knew how to crucify people. And their intention is that he hang there until he stops breathing. And throughout the day, as Jesus' body would grow weak, and he would slump over, over and over again, his lungs would deflate with air. And on those nails, he would pull himself up and push himself up just to catch a breath over and over again as the wounds on his back gushed with blood up against the wood. That's what crucifixion was. Until you suffocate. Until you can't catch your breath again. Until you give up on catching your breath. We will hang you there until it is all over. With bugs in your mouth. Blood in your mouth. Sweat in your mouth. Trying to breathe. Hour after hour after hour. That's what crucifixion was. Notice as Jesus is writhing in pain, trying to catch his breath, what's going on below the cross. They divided his garments. Probably at this time it would have been four garments. Probably four soldiers there. A tunic, shoes, undergarments, a seamless robe that they just divide up by, notice, casting lots for them. And so they're gambling at the foot of the cross for what garment of Jesus they're going to get. And they probably all wanted the robe. They chose not to rip it because they wanted it. It was valuable to them. And so they are gambling. This would have been compensation for the soldiers for such a gory job. Imagine if this was your job every day. Okay, this is your bonus at the end of the day. You get something of the criminal. 
to take home with you. Notice verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And this is amazing because this would have been 9 a.m. Now think about that. Jesus is arrested early morning in the garden. And by 9 a.m., they have him on the cross. Golgotha. Think about the efficiency of that. The Romans executed people with Chick-fil-A efficiency. And I know that is weird. Do I laugh at that? Do I not? But they were so efficient with it. At one point, they... It is said of the Romans that they executed thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands that they couldn't find trees to execute with. They couldn't cut them down quick enough. They knew what they were doing and they were so efficient. They have him on the hill, on the tree by 9 a.m. After six trials, the beating, the spectacle, there he is at 9 a.m. Notice as you look, Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. Now, it actually said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And this was Pilate's attempt to get back at the Jews. He had almost lost his job three times because the Jews had turned him in. And now he gets back at them in this sort of petty dig. Here's your king, you stupid Jews. You think this is your king, Jesus? Of Nazareth, this hillbilly who said he was uh, the son of God. Look, this is your king. He is mocking them as they mock him, as they mock Jesus. Verse 27, and when they crucified and with him, they crucified two robbers. These would have been two men who were a part of the same insurrection that Barabbas was a part of. Remember, Barabbas was released for Jesus, but they had been a part of an insurrection And they've been given the death penalty. And here Jesus is with them. And in verse 28 is in some manuscripts. It's not in others that talks about the fact Jesus would be from Isaiah 53, 12. He would find his place with the wicked. Here he is on the cross with two criminals, two guilty. In verse 29, notice, and those who passed by derided him. Now, this was a gesture, you turned your nose up at somebody. This would have been like giving someone the finger. So people are walking by, they're turning up their nose, they are yelling at him. Notice they're wagging their head, they're shaking their head in disbelief. And notice what they're saying. Aha! Really? Are you serious? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Remember Jesus promised as he stood before the temple? I will wipe the temple out and rebuild it in three days. And people laughed. The glorious temple of David, this magnificent structure. You're going to tear it down and build it back up. Who do you think you are? And now they stand there and Jesus is is being crucified. You have no power. That is hilarious. Remember the jokes you told us about destroying the temple and rebuilding it? What are you going to do now? You're a fake clown king. Notice verse 30, save yourself and come down from the cross. If you have all this power that you've talked about, Son of God, that's by what power you do all of these things. You're the fulfillment of the law. You're the king of the cosmos. Then get off the cross. Hilarious. 
that you would be hanging on a cross after you've declared you're the son of... That makes no sense. And notice the chief priests probably show up just to make sure the deed is done. We want to watch him suffocate. Their arch nemesis who has taken their authority, their privilege away. The chief priests and the scribes, those who know the law, the religious, they show up and what do they do? They get in on the act and they mock him. As, as the unbelievers, the Gentiles, the rebels, the pagans are making fun of him, the religious tune in too. Yeah, remember when he healed all those people? Remember all the good things he was doing as he was going from town to town to town and there was sickness, there were disease. He was making people whole and well and we couldn't explain it. Well, now we know it's not true who he said he was. I don't, we don't know how he did all of those things, but if he's hanging on the cross, he's sure not God. Come off the cross, save yourself. You saved others. You healed so many. You performed so many miracles. All the stories. You calmed the sea. You even, you even raised some from, someone from the dead. Come off the cross and save yourself. Verse 32. Let the Christ, and this would have been sarcasm, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. If you are who you say you are, why are you on a cross? Why are you being executed? This is hilarious. And then notice the insult of insults. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Guilty criminals begin to look at him and mock him. King? Ruler? This is, you're just like us. You're a common criminal just like us. An insurrectionist just like us. This is hilarious to everyone who is around. The foolishness of the cross. A crucified Messiah. It would be like saying a godly pedophile. The words don't go together. Jesus' message of being the Messiah and hanging on a bloody cross don't fit. It's an oxymoron before them. It doesn't make any sense. Because if you have all the power and you have, you have all of the authority, then what you should do is use that for yourself and come down off the cross. Because somebody with such power and authority would not die. They would rule and they would reign. And yet the wisdom of the gospel is Jesus is accomplishing his plans and purposes, not by asserting his power, but by laying it down. And before their eyes is the promise. The temple is being raised to the ground at Golgotha because the temple is his flesh and blood and the temple will be raised up three days later. And to notice verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So we have three hours of total darkness as Jesus suffocates to death. Now, I believe at this point, this is where Jesus is enduring the wrath of God. This is where God's judgment is being poured out upon him. Biblically, darkness represents judgment. And in this moment... The wrath of God is being poured out upon Jesus. And there's why there is darkness everywhere. For three hours, the torture of hell is being poured out upon the Son of God. Until finally, verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first part of Psalm 22, where David, who is alone in battle and feels forsaken, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 in Hebrew, says it in Aramaic. Notice the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here in those words, we see the culmination of God's wrath. And it is to be forsaken forever by God. And Jesus fills the forsakenness. On the cross, God is not absent. A lot of times we think at the cross, the Father and Holy Spirit just went somewhere else. They didn't go anywhere else. The Father is executing judgment on His Son. He is withholding all good from the Son. They are withholding even, we don't even know how to explain it. It gets borderline heretical at some points, but we have to say it. At some point, they are withholding good fellowship from Jesus. He's still God, but He is enduring the judgment of God in these moments on the cross. God is not absent. He is active in judgment. And Jesus fills it and speaks to the Father. Why are you forsaking me? I have no sin. The perfect, sinless Son of God asked the Father, Why are you forsaking me? The same way Adam was banished from the garden. The same way we endure spiritual death. We are separated Because of our sin from God. And what we deserve is eternal separation from God in hell. Jesus is asking the question, why me? Why? He fills hell in his soul. And there's no comfort from the Father. None. Full brunt of judgment. The cross isn't an abstract fairy tale. It's not a math problem in a galaxy far, far away. It is flesh and blood enduring hell and judgment in a moment on the cross that only God could do. God can only, God's the only one that can do this and work this out. And notice what happens. And some bystanders said, behold, he's calling down Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink and said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down and take him. Now, the first part of Psalm 22 sounds like he is saying the name Elijah, Elijah. But this is more mockery. Because when God would, God promised to come, his king would come and Elijah would come with him. And so they're mocking Jesus. Oh, now's the time Elijah comes. We've read about this. Stick that sponge in his mouth. See if you can keep him alive a little bit longer. Let's see if Elijah comes. And then verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And breathed his last. In the other Gospels we know right here is when Jesus said, It is finished. It's over. And it is in the words, it is finished, that we see who's really in control. Think about that. Jesus doesn't give up till he wants to give up. Jesus doesn't give up until he has endured all the judgment and all the wrath to pay for all of our sin. He doesn't give up. And so he's the one in control. The spear in the side, the nails in the, in the hands and feet, 
gasping for air. Jesus is the one who calls it quits. No one else. And when he says it is finished, he is saying the penalty has been paid. That's why in the darkness we know it was judgment he's enduring. I don't believe Jesus went to hell for three days. I believe the judgment is paid at this point. It is finished. No more judgments. It's over. And he dies, which is the end result of being separated from God to physically die. But at this moment, Jesus has endured the hell that pays for our sin. And how do we know that? Notice verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple which separated the people from the holiness of God. And only the priest could go in after animal sacrifice, which said sin must be paid for. And he would sprinkle the blood of the animal in the holy of holies to declare people, you you have access to God. And here what Jesus is saying in this moment is all sin has been paid for in his flesh and blood. He has endured the wrath of God. The curtain no longer needs to exist. The penalty's paid. It is finished. Jesus endures the wrath of God and tears the curtain so that you might enjoy the fellowship of God and goodness of God. Jesus is the mediator who went behind the curtain as the lamb who was slain for our sins. And then notice verse 39, which is the last verse we'll get to today. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in his way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now imagine what's gone on in his life during this day. Arresting Jesus. Pulling Jesus from trial to trial pushing Jesus down the streets. And here, he's the one who confesses who Jesus really is. One who probably led the crucifixion. And this is the question throughout the book of Mark. Who is this man that even the demons obey him? Who is this man that that the wind and waves obey him? Who is this man standing in our synagogue acting like he knows the Scripture better than we do? Who is this man who who dines with tax collectors and sinners? Who is this man causing disruption from village to village, town to town? Who is this man? And it is the one who crucifies him who declares who he is. Surely he's the Son of God. It is the centurion standing there who has seen the beatings, the mockings. He probably shoved the spear in his side. He's heard him scream in agony. He's heard every gasp of breath. He's heard it all. He's seen it all. He heard him say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. As the nails went into his hand, he heard Jesus look at the criminal and say, Today you will be with me in paradise. And he heard him say, It is finished. And at that moment, he gets it. This is the Son of God. This is who He said He was. The wisdom of the Gospel is that the one who does the crucifying is the one who must do the confessing. Surely this is the Son of God. That's the truth of the Gospel. And so this week, how do we reflect on the Gospel? You know, I said earlier, the freest moment I think it is in all of our sin 
the freest moment as sinners is when we get caught in our sin and we can't hide it anymore. Whether you've stolen candy at the store, you broke the window at the house, you hid your report card, you deleted your internet history, you've led a double life. So many people, as I've counseled, they will tell me the freest, most liberating moments is when I got caught because I couldn't hide anymore. And so this week, Holy Week, I want to encourage you to get caught at the cross. Because the cross is where we all get caught with our sin. We're all the centurion there with the nails and the hammer and the spear, laughing, mocking. And so this week, what does it look like to get caught at the cross? First of all, this week, continually confess your sin at the cross. The cross, as we have seen here, is the apex of our sin. What we have described here and what we have walked through here is a galactic mirror of the human heart. When you look on the cross, you see what your sin can do. You see in a mirror how horrible sin can really be. We, we like to talk about today the world, and it's just going to hell in a handbasket. It's so bad out there. It's so horrible. Well, we will never reach the bottom of our sin again in the most hideous acts that's ever happened, and that's killing God himself. That's as low as it gets. But that is a picture of how low you can go. And the wickedness in your heart and my heart. It is the apex of our sin and we must see it to beat the Creator senseless and take everything from Him and to hang Him as a clown king with criminals. That is how bad it can get. And, and one of the things that's interesting about the crucifixion that you got to pick up on is the mockery, is the making fun of Jesus. Because that is a picture of the essence of our sin. And that's what the Bible calls foolishness. It, it is to say to God, I'm the king and you're the fool. I'm the judge and, and you deserve to be punished for telling me what to do. No, I determine what I should do. And I determine who I should be, not you. You're a fool for telling me what's going to make me happy. God, you're a fool for, for, for telling me what's good and what's right. You're a fool. You don't know. And so at the cross, we see a vivid picture of our sin. And, and notice they even take everything away from him, which is inherent in our sin. I deserve it all, Jesus, down to your last stitch of clothing. Give it to me. I deserve it all. I need, that's why you exist, right, God? You exist for me. So I should have it all. And this is a picture of our sin. This is what our sin looks like. And this is the sin Jesus dies for is your mockery of God. And so this week you may say, I didn't hold the whip. I didn't hold the thorns. I didn't hold the hammer. I didn't hold the nails. But I held the sin that nailed him to the cross. I did that. You have to be able to do that to understand the cross. He is there for your sin. Not just suffering pain and agony. Not just caught up. Not at the wrong place at the wrong time. No, He's suffering for your sin. Your sin nailed Him to the cross. Your foolishness. And so we sung the song today, Were You There? Yes, I'm there every day. 
Because it's my anger, my foolish pride, my lust, my impatience that says to God, you're the fool and I deserve more. That's what he's dying for, my sin. Notice, first of all, we confess our sin and then we claim the cross. So how will you get caught at the cross, confess your sin and then claim the cross? Here in these moments, God leverages the worst day in human history for His glory and your good. Think about that. This is the worst it gets. And so God uses it for His glory and your good. The most heinous act is the saving act. How bad can sin be? Killing God. Well, in killing God on the cross, He endures the wrath of God and we're free of sin. He uses the worst day to be our best day. The day that's full of hate was the day full of love. The day that was unjust was a day of justice. The day that was covered in darkness was our day of light. And so we claim it. We don't run from it. We don't ignore it. We embrace it because it's our worst day. And at the same moment, it is our best day. And so you can live your life saying, my worst, best day has already happened. Calvary. Your worst sin doesn't get worse than the scene at Calvary. But here's the, here's the truth of the gospel. When you believe in Jesus, your worst sin doesn't leave Calvary. It's nailed to the cross, and so you claim it. How bad, how bad does my sin get? A crucified Messiah, God Himself. But how good does it get? The sin's already been paid for. So we... Claim the cross. And finally, we confess Jesus just as the soldier. We confess our sin, we claim the cross, and we confess Jesus. As you look at the cross this week, I want to remind you, if you declare that this is the Son of God hanging on the cross, then when you declare that and confess that, you're saying He is sinless. So why is He on the cross? It's not his sin. He's not being forsaken for his sin. He's being forsaken for your sin. This son of God, the soldier, it dawned on him, this is an innocent man. We've killed an innocent man. Surely he was the son of God. He, he honored the father. He fulfilled the law. And here he's dying for our sin. And so if he is the son of God dying for our sin, then there's a sufficient payment at the cross. That's what it means to say He's the Son of God. It means He's sinless. He's perfect. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. We confess that that's true. So we confess our sin, claim the cross, and confess Jesus at the cross. We declare my sin is what led Him there. But before we finish today, even though your sin led Him there, Even though your sin is why he went there, your sin did not force him there. Now think about that. Your sin led him to the cross. But don't for a minute think you forced him to go to the cross. In Isaiah we read, it pleased the Father to crush him. This was the predetermined plan of God that He died for your sin. In the cosmic grace of God, Jesus chose to go to the cross for you. You didn't force Him there. 
And it was all planned out in perfection. The early morning arrests, the six trials before 9 a.m., the darkness from 12 to 3. It was all planned by God. Down to the time when the last syllable left his mouth, it is finished. Down to that second, it was planned by God. Because in the city, Jerusalem, at 3 p.m., when Jesus breathed his last, there would have been parties, there would have been celebrations, there would have been cookouts all day. But at some point during the day, fathers would have left the home and they would have gone to the marketplace and they would have tied a rope around a lamb. And they would have drugged this lamb back to their home the same Jesus was drugged to Golgotha. They would have told their sons, go, go out back and get the lamb without blemish and bring him in. And little kids would have gone out in their backyard and they would have captured the lambs and they would have brought them inside to a place where they would have been strapped down to a table. And at 3 p.m., as Jesus is forcing through blood-soaked vocal cords, gasping for air, screaming, it is finished. In that moment, there would have been knives all throughout Jerusalem slitting the throats of little lambs. At the exact moment, Passover lambs are being slaughtered as the Lamb of God is being slaughtered for your sin. And it was all down to the moment planned by God. Confess your sin, claim the cross, confess the... But no... This was a marvelous plan. We have sung today. Think about how scandalous this is. If you know nothing about Christianity, try to do that for just a moment. And you walked into this room today and we are saying, wonderful cross, glorious cross, amazing cross. We, some of us got it. Gold crosses on our neck. Do you know nothing about Christianity? That is sick. It's sick and disgusting. It's like having an electric chair around your neck. But we say it's glorious and it's wonderful because it was the plan of God to take away our sin. Please, God. And so this week, I want to ask you, why would you hide? Jesus didn't hide from your sin. Jesus knows your sin better than you. He didn't hide from it. He knows the full brunt of it. You see, some of you think that's what Christianity is. You think Christianity is playing a game of hiding your sin. That's what you think the gospel is. I can get around church folk and not look so bad. I can go to this and this at the church and nobody's going to know how bad I am. And that's the game you're playing. You think this is about an image. No, this is about a bloody cross that you can't hide. And so why are you hiding? The gospel is good news that you don't have to hide anymore. The gospel is not good news that you can hide at church. And we're not going to let you hide because your greatest joy is to come to the cross. And so I want to ask you today, what are you scared of? What are you scared of in confessing your sin? Are you scared of God? 
The wrath of God has already been unleashed upon him. Are you scared of what others are going to think? You've already been beaten and dragged through the streets of Jerusalem and dressed up like a clown king and mocked. What are you scared of? Why are you hiding? There's no more condemnation for you. You've already been put on blast. You've already been outed. What are you hiding from? What kind of person hides their sin? What kind of person hides their sin? The kind of person that's never been to Calvary with Jesus. The kind of person who's never been to Golgotha and seen the worst thing that you've ever done. Your sin under the very wrath of God. Your sin that crucified this very Son of God. Your sin that can't be hidden under a house. 